in a marginalized community, perhaps in a refugee community, an immigrant community, the first need is feeding, right? Housing. And those, those markers uh, can be overcome given time. But you to do the work of justice, quite frankly, is a privileged work in some ways, right? It's necessary. And that's why Dr. King was so extraordinary because he was doing justice out of a marginalized community, out of the, the struggle of those who had been cast out and left behind and forgotten and invisible, right? So when you can get there, that is truly God's work. I mean, that is, that is like, that is work beyond belief in terms of changing systems. Welcome to Awakening Lives, a podcast of the Spirituality Network. We seek to cultivate the awakened life through contemplative living in action. My name is Alejandro Rodriguez, and joining me today is my pastor and friend, Tim Ahrens. Tim, I am so grateful that we have this time to chat together today. This is awesome. I'm so happy to be with you, Alejandro. So I, I have to say, I started uh, attending First Church because of what I read in the bulletin about Micah 6-8. And I don't think that a conversation about justice can begin unless we ground it in, in that particular scripture. And I, I just want to read it uh, just for everyone uh, who may not be familiar with it. So uh, Micah 6-8 reads, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I have used this as my personal mission statement for more than 30 years. I'm, I'm curious, Tim, what, uh, what does this particular scripture mean to you? Well, I, I would say it means everything. I mean, I, I don't um, I, I can't think like you. I can't think of a time in my life uh, when this hasn't influenced um, my daily walk with God, and uh, I, you know, I the the part that always trips me up, and that's what I love about it is the humbly walking, um, because um, uh, years ago, one of my dear friends, Rabbi Apotheker, um, said in in a Bible study we were in on this text, he said, um, you know, we really don't know if anyone is humbly walking with God until they're dead. I, I love that because, you know, it's at the, it's at the viewing, it's at the funeral, it's at, it's at the family gathering that you start hearing stories that are about humble walking. Um, the story of, uh, of, of a person that uh, gets up in the middle of the night and goes down to the steps of First Congregational Church and ministers to the, to the hungry and homeless on our steps. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. And then they don't tell anybody, right? I mean, that's, that's the power of, of humble walking. It's not about um, telling everybody I'm humbly walking now. <laughs> so, but the first two, you know, doing justice, loving tenderly, which is really a, a translation out of the Hebrew, loving tenderly um, and loving mercy, but loving tenderly with steadfastness. Um, does it get any clearer than that? I don't think so. I don't so. think so. I don't no. think so. No, I mean, and, and I love uh, the the directness and the simplicity of this. It is very clear that this is what 
God expects of us. And and I have my own perspective on uh, walking humbly, uh, which we could probably do a whole other episode on. Uh, but I, I'm curious. I, sometimes I I maybe read a little bit too much into it, but I'm wondering, is there a reason why acting justly is at the beginning of this phrase? Is, is there a particular significance to that? Well, personally, I think that's uh, that's what God wants us to be doing. You know, when I wrote my book, The Genius of Justice, well, actually, when I was doing the interviews, uh, the conversations I had with 53 geniuses of justice, the one that continually comes back to me, uh, and I asked questions of each person that were the, that were saying the same or similar, but I asked what text of scripture most influences your life of faith, and when I asked uh, the great uh, Walter Brueggemann that, he said, the whole thing, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, as I said, if this was a conversation with God, the thing you don't say next in a follow-up interview is, could you explain the whole thing, God? <laughs> but, but I did, of course, being me. And he said, from every, from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation, God is crying justice. He is crying justice. He is, he is proclaiming it. The whole text is about justice because once the once the creation has taken form and shape, um, it's given into our care and God's, you know, management of that beautiful creation that God has set in motion is to make sure that we don't screw it up. And in fact, do better than that. Not just the negative, not put in the negative, but in fact, multiply goodness, multiply gratitude, multiply love, multiply care and stewardship. So, you know, Walter's right. It's the whole thing. But, you know, for me, I'm not Walter Brueggemann. I mean, the greatest theologian probably in history, right? So I like to come back to Micah because those couple of verses ground me every day. And, but, but they sing in the midst of the text around all the rest of the 66 books and within the context of all the rest that are crying justice. So uh, you said that uh, Micah 6, 8 influences your daily life. Has that always been the case? Has justice always been uh, a, a big important driver in your life? Or how, how have you gotten to the point where uh, you know, when I think of justice, I, I think of you uh, because of everything that you do in this space. What's been your journey of faith that's brought you here? Um, maybe like Walter, the whole text, right? The whole story. Um, it's it's hard to describe, actually, in some ways. And, you know, and as I've reached uh, this stage of my life, I begin to look back on it a little differently and and wonder, how did I get to be um the person that i've become right i mean i think that we all do that sort of as we approach the horizon of of our life um and and it's not it's not uh examining your navel this is not like i don't mean it that way i mean here it is the the sweep of time and um service and passion i'll tell you um I'll tell it to you in a different way. There's something that I'm sort of like the salmon swimming upstream. I've always seen 
something different in the water. I've always gone against the current. Um, I've always, um, uh, in, in a piece I've written recently for the Dispatch, I talk about being a major in political science and religion at, in my college, McAllister College, and the two were in the Twin Towers of Old Main. You know, every, every liberal arts college has an Old Main of some sort or another. Uh, and if it's called, if it's named after somebody, then somebody had a really big ego because it should just be called Old Main, right? <laughs> just, just call it what it is. So, but in the one time, I had to go down two flights of stairs, walk across, go up the other thing. And finally, one of my mentors and political science uh, advisors and um, guiding lights in my life, Chuck Green said, why don't we put a tightrope between the two towers and you can just walk back and forth. And I, I sort of lived my life on that tightrope, both in terms of faith and politics, uh, justice in politics, but um, just in terms of who I am um, spiritually as well. So, you know, it's taken, the tightrope has taken me across to get to know other faiths, to get to know other people, uh, to go to places that Christians don't go, quite frankly. Um, so, um, because I'm curious, maybe I'm the original Curious George. When was that first in publication? <laughs> so, anyway. Um, Quite a while ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> before my time. Uh, but, you know, that's just, it's just been me. I've always been that person. When, I, when I, I remember going on a mission trip into a war zone in Nicaragua years ago, and my mother, before I got on the plane, uh, basically said, you know, I'm saying goodbye to you because you're not going to make it out of a war zone doing an eyeglasses mission trip, right? And I said, she said, why are you doing this? And I said, because you raised me to do this. Mm. Um, and this is what I'm called to do. And she said, well, I don't like that answer. And I said, I don't care. This is, I'm your son and you raised me this way. You raised me to go against the stream. That's way, the way I am and tough. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> I, I did wonder if, you know, your dad's a pastor, if if he had the same uh, perspective on justice that you do. Well, my dad was not a pastor, actually. My oh, he wasn't. But, well, both my grandfathers were, but my dad okay. was not a pastor. But he was, Alejandro. He spent his life as a layperson in serving the church. Um, and this week in which the United Church of Christ celebrates its 66th birthday, uh, at the 50 mark, my dad was recognized as one of the 50 most important people in our first 50 years as a denomination. Okay. It was a remarkable um, influence in my life, a very important um, influence in my life. But he actually went to World War II, and he had sort of grown up thinking he was going to be a pastor. But his father sent newsletters his father was a pastor and his father would send newsletters to all the soldiers overseas and um it kept growing his newsletter list so he kept mailing more and more every week to the soldiers overseas and my dad said he had a bigger congregation during world war ii than he ever had um when he served the church and it was a better congregation as he said <laughs> So he said, I was influenced to seek journalism as my way of communicating um, the gospel because I saw that during the war. I would literally, you know, soldiers who would see him reading would ask to be on the mailing list. And my dad would send back names across. It wasn't like he could text them, right? So he sent back names across the ocean. And so he was very influenced and became, changed his whole direction. But 
long story short is that he was a journalist who was a Christian and then spent his, his years um, telling the Christian story in a sense in the contemporary moment. So nice. Um, so yeah, great influence, but yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. For yeah, me. No, that's okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you had talked about the entire 66 books of the Bible are, are telling the, the story of justice. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, what's your perspective on the difference between a biblical view of justice and a secular view of justice? How, how are those similar or different? Well, actually, one of the reasons I like Micah 6.8, to return to that, is you could take out a few of the words. I don't think you have to take out very many. Lord, right? I mean that, And you could hand this to a secular person and say, is this a creed? That you could live by is this a is this a, a, a you know a foundational principle that you could adopt and they would probably say yes um, you know one of the powers to me of preaching and teaching you know sort of in the in the shadow of my father or maybe in his in his uh, in his wake <laughs> but uh, is to reach others that are not Christian um, you know. One of the things that that I said, I always say is it's great when people join the church and have come from another church, we call it transfer of membership, but that's like switching Christians, right? I mean, the real call is that people will see us, that we're living the values of our life and will want to be a part of us for the first time ever, that they've never been a part of something like this before. And that's, but, but you know, it doesn't have to be that way. In other words, we don't have to be evangelizing. To me, we just have to be living with integrity and honesty and doing the things that the scriptures tell us. I always say, Alejandro, that if you want to hear someone talk about God in a really meaningful way, talk to an atheist, right? Because they know more about God than most people of faith do, and they think about it. So, you know, they, they, they consider God all the time. I think most people are always, there's something in us as humans that we are seeking. We're seeking to understand that which is beyond us, that we can't quite grasp. And for those of us who are people of faith, you know, who, who find our way to that path, we give it a God language, but it could be infused with other language. In my book, I talk about uh, the outliers, people who do the right thing based on the creeds they follow, which might be legal creeds or medical creeds. They might be other things, but they have all of the deep values that we would identify in, in faith, um, faith community. But um, yeah, so I think, I think uh, there's a lot of tie between the community. And by the way, the other thing is, I think I was on the state house steps the other day, um, you know, preaching actually, <laughs> trying to, get the the senate to get their uh heads out of uh, a hole in a tree and um and change the the budget which is really oppressive to the people of ohio and by the way those are our taxes right and so they're oppressing me with my own money right and they're oppressing us with our own money anyway um but the as i was speaking i was aware that in that crowd based on statistics, maybe 70% or 65% were people of faith, but the others were not. Mm. And I told a story from scripture and 
I had folks coming up to me afterwards and say, where is that that you found that from? And I cited the source and they go, I should read the Bible sometime. And I said, yeah, it's got some good material. It's It's got some rough stuff too. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> as, as, as George Burns uh, once said to his wife, Gracie, he said, you know, sweetheart, he went to her grave after she died. He's standing there and he goes, you know, sweetheart, if you get into trouble up in heaven, go to the son. He's one of our boys. He says the father can be a little tough sometimes, you know. So, you know, you've got this this spiritual guide in Jesus that truthfully speaks across religion. Yeah. You know, if you are secular and you don't like Jesus, that's because you don't understand who he was and is even. But it's not. And it's because you do understand the way those who follow him have screwed up the story. Right. Yeah. So I, I, there's nothing wrong with Jesus. You can ask Gandhi, you can ask Muhammad, you can ask anybody and they'll tell you Jesus is just fine. It's his disciples that have a heck of a lot of trouble. So, yeah. So, so I think we're in, we're in, and, and by the way, most of the world uh, we get caught up in our little communities um, that we call church or synagogue or mosque. We get caught up in these little communities and think that's the way it is. Not the way it is. It's a part of the way it is. And so yeah. we're only particles in the body. Yeah. And um, I, I, we've got to relate to the whole body. Absolutely. So, yeah. so I, I'm reading two books that I think we're going to have to have a lunch to discuss. Uh, I'm just about finishing with uh, Brian McLaren's Do I Stay Christian? which is outstanding. And I've just started reading based on a recommendation from a friend, the little uh, book on atheist spirituality. Uh, so I'll tell you about it uh, after I finish. <laughs> no, I would love, I would love to see that. And it's going to take uh, trailblazing thinkers like McLaren uh, to shake uh, the trees in the forest that, that are, that call themselves Christian and get them to, pay attention to the fact that their leaves are dropping fast right so yeah. it's like when he yeah. shakes us up we realize this is not good right we're losing a lot of leaves and it's only summer so yeah yeah so you know when i think of the spectrum of christians and and justice i think there's one end of the spectrum that looks at justice as retribution and punishment and then there is another end of this spectrum that looks at justice as equity and uh, an inclusion. Uh, and, and I imagine there is a, a, a blend between those two perspectives. Do you see that as well? Or uh, it, am, am I looking at it uh, in, in the wrong way? Well, I, I think that's a good starting point, but I think it's a little more nuanced than that, um, in, in that um, there's even more. Uh, it, it's almost kaleidoscopic, Alejandro. I mean, you know, looking through the kaleidoscope, you can see different shades and, and figures of justice. It is, I would have to say, it's kind of an elusive word in some ways. Uh, I think um, that, and I've heard that, by the way, about my book, um, that it's very much focused on religious people, and I, I, and and I, when it, when people tell me that, it's like, well, that's that's my posse. I mean, these are the people I know. So you know, you can write a book about somebody else. This is who I know, and this is who I'm most closely related to, right? So I, that's not a criticism that sticks for me. It's just part of the picture. But in that picture, we have some very clear 
definitions, and I write about this, that there's retributive justice. There's, um, uh, there's justice that um, brings people back. I mean, that to, to put somebody away. So when you go before a judge and uh, you either have committed a crime or they say you've committed a crime, right? And they put you away for a certain amount of time, that's retributive, right? If there's restorative justice, you may actually come before in, in a in a uh, in a secular way in in a legal way. You may come before a panel of people who who bring you back in relationship with the person who you have wronged and work it out. Right? Um, restorative justice is now a model that the Columbus uh, City Schools are beginning to use in every school because the Bread Organization has brought that to them. Um, and so we're not trying to put kids away or throw them out the door. We're trying to get them to come back together and restore them. So those concepts, um, which some people would not see as having any grounds in faith traditions are exactly grounded in faith traditions. Um, you know, both, both are. So I do think there's a lot, and, and there's, as I say, there's a multifaceted understanding of justice, some with a hammer, there's there's a there's a stained glass window in uh, at First Congregational Church, uh, the window that honors um, uh, Washington Gladden, and and there's two huge characters side by side. One is charity or mercy, and one is justice. And this is a classic image. Charity has a cornucopia in her hands, and it's a female image, right? And she's like giving away good things, right? And, and helping people. Justice has a sword and he looks really mad. So it's like, you know, you, the sword of justice is, is a very powerful image. It's even in stained glass. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, the, I, I think what you're pointing out is an importance of justice isn't happening in a vacuum, that it right. needs to be paired with, with charity or mercy uh, in order to uh, perhaps be most effective. Right. Yeah, it's um, um, one cannot exist without the other. I mean, that's why Micah is so powerful, Alejandro, because there are very few places in writings and in scripture where the two come together. Um, justice can't go on without mercy. Mercy can't go on without justice. But it's holding them together and holding them in balance back to the, the passage that someone walking the humble life can do. Someone who is able to walk both, is able to hold both. Um, the great um, Bishop of Recife, uh, Brazil, uh, Don Helder Camara said it best. He said, you know, when I, when I feed the hungry, everybody calls me a saint. But when I try to get to the roots of why there are so many hungry, I'm called a communist. I, I think, we, we often elevate mercy as saintliness, right? If, you, if you're feeding the hungry, I mean, our Good Samaritan program at First Congregational Church is a glorious program. It is a, amazing to meet people in their immediate needs with hands open as they come with hands open, right? Um, but there's other, that's the mercy side. Then there's the bread side. There's the justice side of changing the system so that they're not showing up at our door in greater numbers, in great yeah. need. So, yeah, I mean, both have to go together. And, and those who, who do the work on either side, 
I find to be the ones who understand that balance best of all, no matter you know who they are. I think they come to realize one goes with the other. Yeah. So I think you're alluding this to this a little bit, but with marginalized communities or uh, underprivileged communities, does justice look different for them or our need for justice? Does it look different for them than it does for people who are more privileged? Oh, absolutely. A absolutely. I mean, um, justice is the leading edge in a marginalized community, although they can never get to that. It's very interesting. In, in my book, uh, The Genius of Justice, I what I talk about in there, one of the things that I sort of allude to, but very briefly, is that I focused on uh, the Judeo-Christian or Jewish-Christian uh, roots of justice in my, my writing. But I have a lot of friends and a lot of colleagues who are Muslims who are in this community and around the globe who do phenomenal work. But what I find is in first generation um, folks that come to our land and probably any land as new people, they are trying to literally get a finger hold, right? Or a toe hold on, on a mountain, uh, you know, a sheer cliff. And so as they climb into the land, um, they don't have the luxury of doing justice, right? They have to survive. So in a marginalized community, perhaps in a refugee community, an immigrant community, the first need is feeding, right? Housing. And those, those markers uh, can be overcome given time. But you to do the work of justice, quite frankly, is a privileged work in some ways, right? It's necessary. And that's why Dr. King was so extraordinary, because he was doing justice out of a marginalized community out of the the struggle of those who had been cast out and left behind and forgotten and invisible right so when you can get there that is truly god's work i mean that is that is like that is work beyond belief in terms of changing systems because that's where it ultimately has to come from it has to come from the bottom up it can't come from a top down justice can't come from top down it always has to come up from those who are struggling the most, those who are trying to get started. But the allies that can come alongside those are those who are privileged. One of my dear friends and mentors, uh, Fred Shuttlesworth, who led the Birmingham Civil Rights Movement and was uh, with King, the co-president of the SCLC, uh, told me a story once. He said, uh, we needed money uh, in the civil rights cause. So uh, Martin couldn't go to New York for this big fundraiser, so they sent me. And I said, well, what did you say? He said, he looked at the crowd and he said, you've got money, I don't. Give me your money so that we can do the work we do. And he sat down. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, you know. And uh, when Fred spoke, people listened. <laughs> I think there are justice is is always this tension it's always and that's why i love that story it's like this tension of um coming to your senses right <laughs> and doing the right thing anyway so tim you you've brought up your book a couple of times and uh in august on the 21st i believe it is you and i are going to have a conversation about your book uh and we'll have the opportunity to invite people to join in on that conversation what uh, what prompted you to write the the book? Um, so 
I tell the story in the first words of the book. Um, it, it, the book starts this way. And, you know, sometimes I've never written a book before, so I don't know how to start one. But the first sentence is Amina Brenda Lynn Robinson was a genius. And anyone who knows the work of Amina Robinson, the artist Amina Robinson, um, knows that she was a genius, right? I mean, so I happened to be in the art museum uh, the day, and, and uh, she was at the in the um, uh, gosh, I'm Derby Court, where they used to have food served, right? I mean, we used to eat our meals there. So I come into Derby Court with my little tray and Amina is at a table with Nanette Macy Junes, the director of the art museum and somebody I don't know. And they're sitting across the room. She gets up and runs over to me um, and comes into my arms and says, Tim, I'm a genius and I'm rich. And she had just won the MacArthur Award for genius, right? And um, so I looked at her, I said, Amina, I've always known you were a genius, but when did you get rich? <laughs> so, um, and so, so the story begins there because um, it, it crossed my mind in the days that followed, not necessarily in the moment, I was just delighted and in, 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 in absolute sheer bliss for her at that moment. Cause she had like a half a million dollar check in her hand too. I forgot that part, <laughs> she had gotten rich. Um, but, um, in that moment, you know, I realized there are geniuses everywhere. She's one of them. And actually, I love starting there because um, this, the rest of the book doesn't have to do with Amina Robinson. It has to do with genius. So in every field, in every place, there, I believe there are geniuses. And a genius is not, this is not a Mensa Society kind of genius. It's somebody who's phenomenally gifted at what they do. And, um, and they can see something that others don't see. They, can, they have an ability to turn uh, a problem inside out and upside down and bring solutions to those problems, right? And um, I think there's a certain giftedness that I've always admired. So I began to ask, who are some of those people that I see doing the work of justice, who are geniuses of justice? And so I compiled a list of 10 people which grew to 25 and ended up at 53. It just kept growing. One of the things is I would ask the geniuses as I was conversing with them, do you know somebody who's a genius? And they say, oh yeah. So like, so by the time I got done, I was exhausted. <laughs> so, but, and it was not exhaustive though. The list is far from exhaustive um, because there are many more geniuses out there. That I actually named some that didn't end up in my conversation flow uh, who are inspirations still living inspirations to me, including James Farmer, by the way, who now is 95 years old and was one of the key leaders in the civil rights movement, but is a real unsung hero. Um, be that as it may, the, it's my book is really a tapestry of weaving uh, their stories and these folks together from deep listening that I did with them over hundreds of hours of listening and, and conversations uh, I, I, I took the seeds of what they said, brought them together. Some of them connected really well. For example, um, two of my geniuses use math to do justice. Now, Alejandro, you've known me a really long time. You know I'm awful with numbers, right? So this is what I would call in Carl Jung's uh, uh, world, 
the shadow side, right? <laughs> like, I don't know anything about this, right? You use math to do justice? <laughs> like, who would have thought of that? <laughs> so, so I tell that story in, uh, in one chapter. And these two guys are like my two favorite people in the whole book because, uh, well, that's not true. I'll say there's others that are my favorite people too. I, I love all 53. But, um, but what they, their story that they tell and, and they don't know each other. So in other words, these are, they're doing these in two different contexts, one in Richmond, Virginia, one in South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina. And so, um, you know, but they're doing similar things. They study spreadsheets to find where hospitals hmm. are gouging the poor, right? Things like that. Yeah. Or they build their networks one person at a time and then that one person at a time, this one guy started with black clergy in the Presbyterian church a couple of years ago. And there are tens of thousands of African-Americans in the Presbyterian church who are completely underrepresented. So he has one by one, person by person, drawn this together. They now are a powerful force in the Presbyterian church because one by one they join. And he knows all of their names and all of their numbers. <laughs> so. Anyway, it's uh, it's cool. So, but so that so these stories sort of come together in this tapestry or this litany of voices, uh, and they blend in some really hopefully creative ways. But um, let me give you an example. One chapter is on um, cold anger. Um, how do we use anger, not as rage? but as, um, as, as transformational, focusing it to change something, right? So we're angry about something, then how do we change something with that? There's another chapter on math. I mentioned that math matters, numbers matter. Um, there's a, a lot on race. Um, there's a lot on inclusion. There's a lot on, um, uh, there's a lot on, on listening and prayer. Prayer is very important in the work of social justice. Mm -hmm. There is not one person I talk to, whether they call themselves a person of faith or not, that doesn't use some form of meditation, silence, contemplation, prayer in their daily lives to fire their being for justice. They use silence. Uh, one of the one of the guys says, "I just sit there early in the morning." This is Rob Belot, who basically uh, almost sunk Dupont Corporation by himself along the Ohio River because they were dumping toxins all over the place to make Teflon. Right? They were killing uh, they were killing um, people. They were killing livestock. They were killing all sorts of things. And he said, "I start each day just alone in a room." and quiet. And I said, well, do you like pray? He goes, no, I don't pray. <laughs> but, you know, he, but you know, I, I love it because here's a guy, he's one of my outliers, right? But here's a guy who uses the tools that we would call something else, but he's using those tools to get centered. And what I described to him was, I said, that's centering prayer. He says, you can call it whatever you want, Reverend. That's not what I call it. And I said, okay, you know, but, but I think there are others who, uh, you know, Sister S Simone Campbell, who um, who started Nuns on the Bus and ran Network in um, in um, uh, Washington D.C. for years. Her daughter, her sister Katie, died when she was young, and she says, "I do the work for two. 
I carry Katie with me everywhere. And she uses uh, Buddhist meditation. So she's a Roman Catholic sister, but she uses Buddhist meditation to center herself each day. So it's very interesting, Alejandro, how it works. The listening, the prayer, um, the silence, um, all of these things are drivers for the transformational agents that we call, that I call the geniuses of justice. Yeah. So a lot of the people that may be listening to this are spiritual directors. So okay. is, is there a special message that you would want to share to people who sit with others uh, uh, who uh, may be grappling with issues of justice? Uh, what 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 would you share with them? Um, I, I've described um, through the years to my spiritual directors, and I've had four spiritual directors across the years, all of them phenomenal. First of all, I would say I would just be a blob of gelatin if it wasn't for my spiritual directors. So I just I would be nothing um, in this world and in my own life. I would be a, you know, I have a therapist too, but my spiritual director, like they just, I, I focus in, in a way that they help me attend. So I would say one thing, you know, help whoever it is to attend, uh, to, to listen to themselves um, and listen for the, the movement of the spirit, be aware. Um, but, I will share with you what I've shared with with others, Alejandro, is I always feel um, like particularly, you know, all these years that the Spirituality Network has been housed in our church, I always feel spiritually inadequate. Hmm. I, I've carried this all my life. I feel like I'm not the right. I don't really pray right. I don't really do this right. Um, I, I'm, I'm not like the really spiritual people. Right. And um, I, I feel I'm spiritually insecure. Let me put it that way. And I would just say, be aware of the spiritual insecurity of those that are sitting with you and that you're sitting with. Um, that there's the sense of uh, I, I want to. I want to impress my spiritual directors with how spiritual I am, but I'm not right. <laughs> so, so I'm just not impressive. And um, so it's this incredible uh, dance that happens. But what they do is listen. And what they do is turn this, that I become aware of God moving in all of that. And I have never lived one of one of the things i would say about myself is i've never lived a day of my conscious life without the conscious belief that god is there i that's not my struggle other people will have that struggle but that's not mine yeah so i have this very conscious awareness of god's presence but i just don't feel like i have the tools to access it right I'm, I'm not one of those good people that can do that so it's a weird kind of thing that's very confessional and i'm glad that uh you know um you allow me to say that in this setting but i would say that if there is for spiritual directors that are out there you're probably all doing this and you're probably doing it really really well but if you're not 
just be aware that the person who is in your presence may be like me. They may be spiritually insecure and they may not present that way. They may present like, oh, they got it all together, but they're not, right? And, yes. and, and then be able to, to identify with your own spiritual insecurities, right? And, and um, be present to them in that. Well, th thank you for your vulnerability. I appreciate you sharing that. So uh, if, if I could honor you, one of the things that uh, I really appreciate about you is this wonderful gift. I mean, you're one of the smartest people I know, and uh, you have a beautiful way of sharing a message in a, in a way that's clear and compelling. And you also have a beautiful heart. And uh, so you 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 touch people with your sincerity as well as with your intellect. Um, and and I'm curious from um, tapping into that heart side, what what are the cries of justice that you've heard that that have moved you? Wow. Um, I tell the story that um, Hank Aaron was always my hero. I always wore number forty four in baseball and basketball. I you know, he was only a baseball player, but I, I wore it in all sports, right? I wore it in soccer. It's like, I should have been more imaginative, like had a hero in, in soccer that would have used his number, like uh, the kids do today. But anyway, but um, I just wore 44. And that's been my number all my, um, all my career, uh, career. I never had a career in all my life. I've worn 44. But when, when he was chasing Babe Ruth's home run record, um, he got in front of the cameras one night and told the truth about all the hate that was coming his way, all of um, the death threats that were coming his way. And I remember thinking, how can you want to kill Hank Aaron? How can someone want to kill him? Um, and it was this awakening as, as a, you know, as a um, young man um, that my hero all of my heroes, by the way, all of my heroes, I'm going to say this a third time, all of my heroes growing up were sports heroes, and all of them were Black. I had one exception to the sports heroes, and that was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I let him in. He was on the wall. I don't know how he got up there, but anyway, he was there too. So, but they were all Black. And, and, you know, as a young child growing up in the 60s, I, I realized, I've talked with a lot of Black friends about this, my room was packed with Black, right? And I didn't have, you know, when people say they, they didn't see color, I saw the men who inspired my life. They're all men, you know, at that point, but the men who inspired my life. And, um, and I, it began me on a journey to find out what their stories were. So I would dig and dig and dig and, and find out the stories of Bob Gibson and Roberto Clemente. And he was not black, but he was also one of my heroes. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I would just dig. And, and I have always, from early, my earliest years, um, they were my heroes. So, you know, I, I, and they all had stories of, of affliction or oppression connected to their rise. And what I have found is there's a common theme that I have found with uh, my African-American friends and all people of color, 
not just African American, who have um, been um, othered. Um, and I write about this in the book. To me, the 54th um, genius of justice is the other, um, whoever that other is. And we have to sort of give her or him or they a name um, and get to know them as, as people. I, I'm, I feel like I'm not answering your question. <laughs> so, but but um, there are so many stories. Every single person uh, who... My mind is packed with with stories. I don't even know where to begin um, of of oppression and struggle and pain um, that have shaped my consciousness, which is um, it's weird, Alejandro, because as a heterosexual white male who has all this privilege just because of what I just said, heterosexual white and male, because of that, um, I, I, I have to start every day with a tearing down and, um, and, um, I don't know how to put it, just an opening up to come to know the pain of others. And I do that every single morning, um, because in other words, like, I, I don't know how to put it other than that. And and so I have to be, I don't know. I, I just, I've been given so much that I've always believed that I have to give it all back, right? And I don't know how, so I've spent my life doing that. Let me, let me go back to the Statehouse steps a week ago. I'm listening to the advocates for children, for LGBTQIA plus, um, kids and 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 young people and adults uh for the elderly uh for the for the hungry for the homeless and and i'm listening to all of them they've asked me to speak and i'm the last speaker right and i'm getting angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier and um these amazing people almost feels like they're begging to be heard they're and and I I'm sitting there going inside my voice is screaming. I'm surrounded by all African American women who have just gotten up and given their witness about being childcare workers and being teachers and you know being healthcare workers and coming through the pandemic and still treated like crap by the state of Ohio, right? And by other places too. I mean, if the state can get away with it, others will get away with it, right? And I was just so mad by the time I got up. It was all I could do to just not scream at the top of my lungs. But I told a story. And I, the story I told was the story from scripture of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Who sits outside the rich man's door and would just eat crumbs to survive. And the rich man passes those crumbs off to his dog. So Lazarus is treated like less than a dog. And he he's starving to get crumbs from the rich man's table. And, you know, he goes to heaven. Father Abraham takes him to heaven at long last. Maybe most mercifully, he takes him to heaven, right? And then back to mercy and justice, you know, the rich man dies and he goes to hell. And, you know, 
he cries to Father Abraham, get me out of here. He says, no, 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 you created this. You put yourself here, man. You had a chance to treat people right and you treated them wrong. So you belong where you are. He says, well, at least tell my brothers that this could happen to them too. And he goes, no, they know. They're children of Abraham. They're children. They're my children. They know what the scriptures say. They know how to live. They know how to follow the law. They know how to do justice. And that's their choice if they're doing wrong. So I, I told this story and I said, we've got to stop begging like Lazarus at the rich man's table. But you need to know everybody in this crowd's going to heaven. <laughs> so, I mean, you guys are the saints of God. You are amazing. And I just showered them with love and, and, and said, but don't beg. This is yours. This is, this is yours. So we are Ohio and we've got to claim it for ourselves. But I did say, there's another place that you put yourself, right? And if you want to end up there, that, that's your choice, right? But it, it affects everybody else in the path. So why am I telling this story? I'm telling this story because um, as somebody who seeks to be aware and given the opportunity, I, I was also sitting there going, why am I talking today? I'm like this old guy. Like, why, why, don't, why don't they get a young pastor up there? And they did have a young pastor, which is good. But I, like, I don't deserve to be up here anymore. I mean, we need to hear other voices. And so I'm, I'm playing all this through my mind as I'm sitting there. But I, I realized that the people inside the halls of the state house look just like me. People making the laws for this state look just like me, and they want to keep it that way. They want to keep it that way. They want to pad their pockets with money. They want to get rich off the Lazaruses of the of the state of Ohio. They want they want to just keep the schemes that they have created, which are corrupt, in the same vein. They want to keep it going that way. And so it's important that someone who looks just like me speaks to them about doing the right thing. So you you may have already addressed that this in your uh, comments just now, but um, as, as we draw to a close here, I, I'm curious, what, what do you think is the most important thing that people of faith can do to carry out justice in this world? Well, start each day in whatever you wanna call it, prayer, meditation, silence, get up, if you say I don't have time, then get up 30 minutes earlier or stay up 30 minutes later in silence and prayer and meditation, however it is. Um, and there's a lot of people in this world that are working inhumane hours at inhumane jobs. So the request to do that is a privileged request. But I think that people need to do this for their own sake and for their relationship with the divine. Um, and uh, I think it will help them uh, in terms of, and, and all of us do, all of us need to find that quiet space to start each day um, and let that speak to you. Um, um, somewhere in the opening of each of my quiet spaces, I open the paper and the New York Times and go online and hear the news of the day. And uh, uh, what the caffeine hasn't done in the first couple, 30 minutes to an hour, um, the papers do and fire me up and get me ready to go. And so I think it's, you know, 
it's starting in prayer, starting in presence, starting in listening, starting in paying attention. And, and then just, you know, follow your heart. Um, there's, there's, um, something I share in the last chapter of the book, um, something I learned years ago from, uh, theologian Robert McAfee Brown, and I'm going to read it. So I get it right. I don't want to, sometimes I get it wrong and I, I'm pulling my book off the shelf here. Um, he says, um, stand up and speak out on behalf of the poor and those who need your voice in the world. Remember that, number one, where you stand will determine what you see. Whom you stand with, number two, whom you stand with will determine what you hear. And number three, and what you see and what you hear will determine what you say and what you do. I love that. That's one of my favorite quotes. Is, I love that quote. Yeah. Yeah. So and, I think that's the key right there. I mean, um, and cling to Micah. <laughs> so cling, cling to Micah and, um, and let Micah, um, there's one of the stoles, uh, Alejandro that Susan has made for me, um, has, uh, that I wear in worship sometimes has Micah six, um, eight um woven into the back of it and it's in hebrew um and it's it's uh it's woven in but it sits on my shoulders and it sort of gives me balance um on my shoulders and i feel its presence when i'm preaching and when i'm in worship so um you know find the place where you can anchor um the these incredibly powerful and valuable texts um and the one thing um that I also would say to those who are religious leaders, um, pay attention to the Gospel of John, where um, the disciples uh, find out that Jesus is risen. And it says that the, the, when the women uh, came back from the empty tomb, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And I, I don't be like that. Um, don't say nothing to anyone because you're afraid. Deal with your fears and then say and do something um, out of the out of the faith and the courage that is garnered by facing your fears. And uh, swim upstream like the salmon. Swim upstream. Yeah. Salmon spirituality. Let's do that one together on the next podcast. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> okay. Jim, thank you. So, so uh, many times uh, your comments made me reflect on the the vision of the spirituality network which is awakening lives transforming the world i i believe that is so critical for us to to become to awake to the the plight of our neighbor uh and ourselves and uh to to act in whatever way we can to to change the world thank you again for taking time to chat with me today uh you've reinforced why I admire you so much, and I'm I'm grateful to call you a friend. And uh, for those You're listening, yeah, thank you. For those of you listening, thank you for joining us today for Awakening Lives. This is one more way the Spirituality Network connects people with resources for spiritual growth and depth, regardless of faith tradition. Through education and training, spiritual direction for individuals and groups, 
and community programs and events. Ecumenical and Interfaith, the Spirituality Network honors diversity and does not proselytize. If you wish to know more about our programming, including the conversation I'll have with Tim on August 21st, please visit us at spiritualitynetwork.org. Join us again next month as we explore ways to awaken our lives and transform the world. If you found this podcast meaningful, please share it with your family and friends on social media. Tim, please close us in prayer. So each of my 53 conversations with the geniuses of justice opened with this prayer. This prayer is from Sister Maxine Schunk and was published by the Spirituality Network in her book, Silver Lining Blessings for Shadow Times 2012. And here it is. May God's spirit bless you when you see or experience injustice. May you be overtaken with a passion for truth as you guard and persevere your own and preserve your own integrity. May you stand up for those without voice, stand in for the victims of oppression and discrimination and stand out in your persistence and desire for God's peace and justice in this world. And may you live your life in pursuit of truth and in profound reverence for all of God's creation. May the God of justice bless you always. Amen. Amen. Oh,